This is a Federal News Network podcast. The IRS is asking Congress for fast-tracking more hires as it builds up its workforce. IRS Commissioner Chuck Reddick tells lawmakers the agency does need that budget on par with the Biden administration's proposal to ramp up by filling critical staffing shortages. But IRS says the lengthy hiring process is keeping in-demand talent from joining the agency. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with the latest. And, Jory, let's begin with what and who the IRS is trying to hire in the first place. In the short term, the IRS is going to hire heavily on its enforcement side of the operation. IRS Commissioner Chuck Reddick recently told the Senate Finance Committee that he's looking to make about 5,000 hires on that enforcement side of things. But when you zoom out and when you look over a matter of years, the IRS is going to need to hire across all aspects of its organization, things like taxpayer services, things like its IT, really across the board. And out of necessity, the IRS expects that over the next six years, 52,000 employees, more than half of its workforce, are going to retire or otherwise leave the agency. This is a fairly old workforce, even by federal workforce standards. And so they're really looking at kind of three categories of hires they're going to be making. These early career folks who have maybe about five or 10 years of experience on the outside. And then Reddick describes some mid-career and senior hires you're looking to make who can really hit the ground running and actually help train the current workforce up on things such as technology, such as cryptocurrency. The IRS is behind on some of those regulations there. But as part of this, as you mentioned, Reddick is also pushing Congress to approve some direct hiring authority so that he can bring these people on in a matter of weeks, not months. But one of the committee members, Senator Rob Portman, expressed some concerns about the IRS's ability to onboard so many people so quickly. You want smart, effective people at the IRS to work with. And the professionalism is important. The training is important. One of my concerns is you're asking for a lot of new people, and it takes a while to train them up. And that's Senator Rob Portman. Jory, what types of people are they looking to do with direct hiring authority as opposed to the regular hiring process? The short answer here is that they're looking to do more of what they've already been doing. For a little context here, the IRS under the Taxpayer First Act recently got some authority from Congress to bring some people on more quickly. This is really only a handful of people. We're talking about 40 hires at any one period of time. Yes, the hiring, the fast track hiring is part of it, but also the IRS is able to offer them up to a quarter million dollars a year in terms of salary. So that's higher than what they would be able to get under the regular federal hiring process. The IRS has been using that. They've have brought on about seven to 10 people currently, and they're looking to do more of this. Red Egg says that he wants to get this direct hiring authority really on the time to hire aspect of things. He wants more of that. The IRS has already brought on a senior data architect, an associate CIO, and people of that nature through this streamlined critical hiring authority. But he says he needs this direct hiring authority because these private sector people like himself, before he joined the IRS, they can't wait forever to join the agency. But without direct hiring authority, I cannot keep these people interested in coming on board for a three, six or nine month period. They will go elsewhere or decide they're just going to either retire or do what they're doing. We need to capitalize on the interest that we are able to generate. There are people like myself who want to come on board for the good of the country, if you will, 
but we need to bring them on board when we have that interest. And that's IRS Commissioner Chuck Reddick. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And getting back to that budget idea, the Biden administration has asked for lots of more money for everybody, except for DHS and defense, but certainly for the IRS. And how does Reddick think that level of funding would help? You know, it's really interesting. We were talking a moment ago about how the IRS is really looking to gear up and beef up its IRS enforcement operations. Um, But really, this budget increase gives the biggest increases to its IT budget and taxpayer services. To put this all in context, the enforcement plus up here with this budget request is about a 5% increase compared to a 15% increase for taxpayer services and nearly a 35% increase for its IT modernization budget. So these are big increases compared to what the IRS has already gotten. And, you know, the IRS has been in the spotlight recently about trying to shrink this tax gap that's growing between what taxpayers owe and what the agency is able to collect. Reddick says that those budget items, IT, taxpayer services, he says they are just as important to shrink that tax gap that everyone seems to be talking about these days. Those two go to helping underserved communities. They go to helping us answer the phones, to getting chatbots, to having it be an experience like people would have in dealing with the private sector. We want to be there. The desire is there. The staffing issues that we have are significant. Again, Chuck Reddig talking about how he'll spend those budget increases and for what at the IRS. And then there's a serious security issue, apparently, at the IRS. The one sacrosanct thing is that nobody looks at people's tax returns, much less discloses them publicly. And yet you have this report now out about Elon Musk and all these other people and their tax rates. What is going on there? How is the IRS reacting? They seem to have a serious, serious problem on their hands. Yeah, like you mentioned, this ProPublica report dropped this week, and it looked into some of the sensitive tax information of some pretty high-earning individuals, people like Warren Buffett, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos. And the report really looks at how little federal income tax they paid in recent years. But as you said, this is a bright red line for the IRS. This information doesn't leave the agency's walls. And so this sent out immediate alarm bells within the White House, within the IRS, Reddick says that the IRS is investigating, so is the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration and the FBI. And so, you know, we heard some bipartisan consensus here from the Senate Finance Committee. Chairman Ron Wyden called this a massive unauthorized disclosure of taxpayer records. And from its ranking member, Mike Crapo, he actually kind of threw some cold water on this idea, which is part of the Biden budget, that the IRS would get more information on individuals, on taxpayers from big banks. And after this episode, he says, no way is that going to fly. Like I say, I don't have a problem with helping the IRS get stronger ability to focus and uh, specialize in dealing with these wealthy individuals, partnerships, and corporations who are avoiding tax owed under the law. But I don't think that Americans would support giving up their access to their own private financial information to the IRS or to any government agency. And that's Senator Mike Crapo. And I guess he's basically telling the agency, Jory, that if it gets to the point where the public doesn't perceive it can trust the IRS with confidentiality, then they've got bigger problems than anyone thought. Yeah, trust is really the cornerstone of everything that we're talking about here. All right, a lot going on. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Be sure to check out his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment, Shane, and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally 
was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of of them, of of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, Who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a Secretary of Commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. 
And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Looking to expand or move your company? Look no further than Ohio. With a talented workforce for in-demand industries like tech, healthcare, engineering, manufacturing, and more, you can staff up and scale for growth. Ohio's central location and reliable infrastructure will help you impress your customers, while Ohio's affordable cost of living and quality of life will excite your employees. Why survive somewhere else when your business can thrive in Ohio? Visit successinohio.com today. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.